Hey everybody, Ruark here. Um, I just wanted to give you a little bit of a warning before we get into this episode. Um, we're going to be covering a lot of information about mental health in this episode. and We're going to get pretty in-depth covering heavy topics like addiction, depression, PTSD, grief, and suicide. So if any of those are topics that, that you think you might be, get triggered by or may not have the bandwidth to, to deal with right now, here's your warning, and, and maybe you might want to skip to the next episode. Um, with that being said, uh, yeah, let's get into it. Welcome to Watch Party Wheel of Time. I'm your host, Ruark, joined by my co-host, Saima. What up, wheelies? And, of course, by our panel of newbies. Say hello, panel. Hey, hey guys. Hello, panel. Uh, joining us today, we've got DW. Yo. Samaria. Happy Saturday. Axel's with us. Hello. There's Greg. How are you now? Siobhan. Hey, everybody. And David. I was expecting a red thing. Where's my damn red thing? <laughs> it beamed down to the planet and didn't survive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm glad we started off with a joke on this one because uh, I'm, I'm not sure how fun the rest of this episode is going to be, but uh, we're, we're going to get right into it. Our subject this time is uh, mental health and, and how it, it's portrayed in the Wheel of Time. Um, so, yeah, this is going to be a, a bit of a, a deeper episode than, than the last couple have been, but uh, we've, we've been hearing from the fans that they like these deeper episodes that we do, so we decided it was, it was an important one to get done. So I'm going to start this episode out on a personal note. I said previously in one of the other episodes about uh, um, how seeing a, a, a masculine redhead in, in the hero role uh, just, just seeing that gave, gave me, uh, uh, what, what's the damn word I'm looking for here? There's some representation. There representation. Little, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Uh, just seeing a, a masculine redhead it, in that hero role, that representation meant so much to me. Um, and I said, that's why this, this series meant so much to me that that's really only half the reason. Um, DW, I've told DW this story, um, but I haven't really told anybody else. I, I suffer from depression. Uh, I have my entire life. Um, and when I was younger, I was, I was rather suicidal. Um, and it came to a point where I was looking for any reason to hold on. And the reason I landed on was the wheel of time. Because, goddamn it, I was, I was there as the main character in the story. I needed to know how my story ended, and that was the thing that got me through. That's why this this series means so much to me. And uh, I'll tell you, the the last few years, uh, especially with the with the pandemic, haven't been easy either, and. Uh, I, I, I once again looked to the wheel of time to, to help get me through. And uh, the show came along at just the right time. <laughs> really did. So, yeah. Um, 
I figured if I didn't uh, say that on the mental health episode, what episode would I say it on, really? So, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's my personal story. Um, I just wanted to get that out of the way right at the start. Um, and, uh, Saima, you have something to say? I want to say thank you very much for sharing that, Ruak. And from my perspective, I think the fact that you bring so much of yourself into the Wheel of Time fandom is something that I know I deeply appreciate and so many of the other friends in the fandom some of my favorite conversations have been around mental health and disability and representation and you know visible disabilities invisible disabilities something that I've struggled with my entire life and as I was saying before we started recording today those discussions in the fandom were really important to me but I had a little bit of anxiety about having it a verbal conversation about it today. So just letting everyone listening know that we are bringing ourselves and our anxieties. Um, <laughs> but we have, uh, you know, we have a great group of people and we feel safe. So just really grateful for that. Um, I and I wanted to take a minute and ask the, the rest of you, um, was there anything particularly in the show that kind of spoke to you on on a mental health level that that you saw something represented there grief mm -hmm. how grief was handled. definitely mm -hmm. that was yeah. huge for me definitely i mean this the series has come along at a time where i have had a lot of uh of loss um especially in family and uh, it's a, you know, I, I, I empathize so, so much with Perrin, with everything he's going through. Um, not just, you know, I'm not saying that I, you know, in the course of fighting a Trolloc, I accidentally, you know, killed a family member, but um, just dealing with the loss. Uh, seeing how it's also affecting uh, characters like like um, uh, Steppen yes oh yeah. lord Steppen yes uh, but also um, Matt uh, yeah you know just seeing that I mean he, he's got a dysfunctional family but he's still mourning that loss, especially of, you know, just the contact with his, with his sisters. And, uh, you know, there's that, that did get you, get you right there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was a moment with Matt that really spoke to me in the series. Um, and it was the, it was the scene in the farm and kind of since then, where that question to himself of whether or not he was responsible, whether or not he did that horrible thing. And, and um, the loss of that little girl that he clearly had started to feel a caring for, but the, the horrible thought in his head that something he may have done may have caused it. And that struggle back and forth in his head of, am I at fault? And uh, that one, that one kind of got me. Yeah, yeah, which gives know, a little 
but but I'm just I was just gonna say that gives a little extra meaning to that uh, to that scene with with Perrin. Mm-hmm. You know, that's something that they both go through the question of whether Matt is responsible and Perrin knowing he is and not saying anything. You know, uh, Siobhan, you have something to say. So just DW brought up that scene with Matt and the little girl and his feeling of responsibility. And it just kind of occurred to me when I have done um, therapy specifically for children of alcoholics, that is a character trait that we carry around with us for the rest of our lives, that we feel overly responsible for the things that happen to the people around us, that we are always feeling there's something I could have done, there's some way I could have stepped in. Because so many people who are raised in alcoholic environments do have to take on that parental role or the role of the responsible adult. And I'd never really pictured that specific scene that way um, until DW brought it up, that that's... That that is a, a a mental health signal right there that that he feels like maybe that was his fault. When having spent some time in Alateen, um, one of the things that you address a lot is um, that somebody else's alcoholism alcoholism is not necessarily your fault because there's a lot of feelings of whether or not you drove them to drink or whether or not they're angry because of what you did or like, what did you do to screw up the situation that caused that? And um, yeah, so I mean, that may be a bit of the parallel for me. Yeah. David, you have something to add? Yeah, I was going to say that uh, <clears throat> for me personally, my uh, one of my big things is lashing out in anger when I have uh, a depressive fit or a lot of anxiety and this show shows that a lot uh, Matt especially does it during his run with the dagger but we see it with Rand and Perrin both and to a certain extent the girls as well and so dealing with how you manage that anger and try and not do it in a destructive way in a release it in a constructive way is a big deal for me. Yeah. Uh, I, I can definitely relate to that as well. There's, uh, there is, uh, something to be said with, uh, what Siobhan was saying about the, the children of alcoholics, which I am, I am one, uh, you want to get that, uh, to give the caring that you feel like you didn't get. And I relate to Matt on that level so, so much. Um, He is trying to be for others what others weren't for him. And it's, it it, it gets you, (laughs) it gets you right in the feels. If you, if you've been in that situation, if you know what that's like and, uh, yeah, there, there's there's a characterization there that you know having the the parents a little bit different from the books uh, that that you know to not to have the dysfunction being a little different from the way you've described it uh, that hits just hard. It really does. Yeah. Um... 
And I want to take the conversation uh, for a moment and and uh, discuss about um, how mental health is portrayed in the books and and how they're bringing that to to the screen. Um, mental health is a big, big component of the books. Um, you see a lot of, of uh, representation of PTSD, um, of, of trauma response, of addiction, um, specifically with the power. There's a whole lot of uh, addiction uh, parallels going on there. Um, and, but in the books, it doesn't seem to come on until a little later in the story, earlier in the story, it seems to be more just kind of a casual adventure. And, and I want to give, give props to Rafe right now for recognizing that, that the underlying mental health stories are a main component of these stories and needed to be included from the beginning. So, so huge props to Rafe for that. Well, you, you had um, also absolutely. mentioned before we started recording. Uh, yes, thank, thank you, Rafe. Um, I, I don't mean to detract from that. Um, but you had mentioned before we started recording that um, uh, the author had a, a, a history of uh, connection to mental health. And you were going to yeah. tell us about that. Uh, yeah. And uh, I guess with that introduction, I might as well do that right here. Um, <laughs> Um, Robert Jordan, we, we have a lot of, of, uh, quotes from Robert Jordan, um, back when he was still alive and, and went through to do tours for book releases and things like that. A lot of the, uh, people would, would record his answers to questions that people gave him and, and put them all online. So we, we have a lot of, uh, information directly from, from Robert Jordan's mouth. Um, and he doesn't talk about his time in, in uh, Vietnam much, but what he does say, you can read between the lines and figure out that that's where a lot of the, the uh, accurate battle depictions and trauma of battle that comes later in the books comes from. Um, I'm going to read a little bit here. Um, anyway, uh, Robert Jordan uh, once told a story about... Uh, um, a particular battle that he was involved in in Vietnam. And I'm not going to go into the details of that. Um, that's, that's his story to tell, not mine. Um, but the next day um, he says uh, in, in the orderly room, an officer with a literary bent announced my entrance with behold, the Iceman cometh. For those of you unfamiliar with Eugene O'Neill, the Iceman was death. I hated that name, but I couldn't shake it. And to tell you the truth, by that time, maybe it fit. I have, or I used to have, a photo of a young man sitting on a log eating sea rations with a pair of chopsticks. There are bodies. It was just the most convenient place to eat. Three dead NVA laid out just behind him. He didn't kill him. He didn't choose to sit there. Just most convenient place to sit. The bodies didn't bother him. He just doesn't care. They're just part of the landscape. The young man is glancing at the camera, and you know in one look that you aren't going to take this guy home to meet your parents. Back in the world, you wouldn't want him in your neighborhood because he is cold. I strangled that son of a bitch, drove a stake through his heart, and buried him face down under a crossroad outside Saigon before coming home because I knew that guy wasn't made to survive in a civilian environment. I think he's gone, all of him. I hope so. I much prefer re being remembered otherwise. So I, I, I think just from that, uh, directly from, from Robert Jordan's mouth, we can see that I think from seeing this, we can definitely see that that he he dealt with a lot of trauma in war and 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 
had to find ways to deal with that trauma. Um, and, and you see a lot of it come out in the books. And, and I think that we are, are, like I said, Rafe really picked up on that subtone of, of the, the text and brought it into the show and brought it in from the beginning. And, and I love him for that. And yeah. Um, any thoughts from, from the rest of y'all? I just want to add to that, that um, initially when Jordan came back, I believe the story that he wanted to write that may have been a way of kind of to deal with everything that he went through was of the returning veteran. So the original story, I think we've touched upon this before, was of Tam coming back from the war, coming back to his home and coming back to normality of that sense. How do you how do you go from being in war for so long and then coming back into, you know, a residential village and going back to becoming a farmer? And I haven't read into this to see that he, you know, he started writing and then actually the story changed and it became about Tam's son, right? the son that he brought back with him and it, and it turned into something else, which was amazing. But I just think the fact that we know that he, that was the original intention, that it shows that he was already using his creativity to work through what he had brought back. Yeah. Yeah, very much so. Uh, Greg, go ahead. Yeah, um, uh, as the the child of a Vietnam veteran, um, you know, I was I was far too young to uh, to really see a change. I you know I never knew my father before he went to Vietnam, uh, and he went as a medic, as a Navy medic, to be a help. And still came back changed, you know, not, not as a soldier, not as somebody who was directly involved in combat, but still, you know, he, he, he still suffered from it. So I can, I can relate to that on a, you know, on a personal level, at least as far as at least as far as uh, as Rand is concerned, because that that's my perspective on it. Uh, but it seems like Tam was, as far as we can tell, a lot more well-adjusted than a lot of other people that had come back from yeah. that sort of that sort of uh, situation. Yeah. Siobhan, you have something to add. So my observation was uh, going to be similar to Greg's when we. Look at how the trauma and PTSD is shown in the show. They don't really use the actual soldiers to portray it. Like Tam seems to, you know, whatever Tam went through to get to that point, at the time that we see him, he seems to be um, fairly well integrated back into the village. You see the the green Aja um, don't really show um, any indications of... PTSD from um, being soldiers. You see it in the civilians. You see it in like Perrin who, you know, for obvious reasons. You, um, and I just thought that was a really interesting choice because very much in our society, we, we often create this division between people who suffer from PTSD, saying people who come back from war zones with PTSD are like the legitimate people who have this condition and people who get it from say domestic violence or abuse of childhood or you know uh, yeah. 
great loss in other areas of their life are almost mm -hmm. not as deserving of recognition of that right need the, for help. the trauma the trauma affects the same even if the the source of the trauma is different right there is that. but it, <clears throat> it, it's it seems like we almost treat people who did not get PTSD in war zones as less deserving of recognition. And it seems like the show turns that completely in the reverse. Mm -hmm. Yeah, And I find that a really interesting choice and a, 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 a choice that I very much appreciate, you know? Yes. I was going to say, we, there's another example, the uh, assassin who's with the Tuathon and is changing her ways. That's a similar situation where she's had all of this trauma by her own hand and by others' hands and now is trying to live with that and find peace in it. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to come back to um, what Siobhan was saying. So there is um, a reference in the show that is pretty much the same in the books. So when Tam is in his fever dream, he seems to be saying that the the conflict got too much for him the killing on the field got too much for him and he went up into the snow to get relief from the heat the killing heat right so the, so in the midst of all the battle he's having this reaction like this is just you know this is too much and by doing that by going away from the battle that's how he finds Shail and you know giving birth and it's almost like he moved away from that and then he finds something else to focus on. He finds a child that he's not able to have with his wife. And so when he returns back to the, you know, the two rivers, that becomes his focus. And, you know, I have friends, you know, who've suffered also in this way that, you know, sometimes your childhood home is a war zone, right? You don't sometimes have to literally. be. Yeah, literally. It's a war zone. And, you know, I know people that have left those kinds of homes to go serve in the armed forces because that's actually a re it's a way to escape and get away and find structure and a way of belonging that everyone's got the same focus. Yeah, I, I love what you said about focus um, because it, you were reading my mind. I was going to say the exact same thing about Tam, that the Tam we see, I think, is so at peace with himself because he was able to find something to focus on. Um, and it leads really well into the discussion of grief as well. You know, uh, when my dad died, we worked out in the garage woodworking and I was taking a class in college that had me build a guitar. And I put myself in that guitar as part of my grief. Like I went out into the, the shop and I would work in the middle of the night, even three o'clock in the morning on that guitar. It was my way, my focus of dealing with that grief. And I don't think I could ever do that again. I couldn't build a guitar like that again. And I do believe that that's kind of the same thing that Tam is feeling when he gets home. He has a focus. He now gets to raise this child that he never thought he would be able to do before. And a child who is a product of war, I think that has even greater significance, that that's where he found him in the midst of this bloodshed. Yes, certainly. Hope. Yeah. So, Mario, you have something. 
Yes, that's actually an excellent segue because my thing about Tam is that he escaped, you know, a war zone and what he found was the opposite of war in which war is taking life, war is destruction, war is, you know, the removal of things very sacred, whether that's home, that's family, that's your literal life. And he found someone giving birth, which is the opposite of those things. You know, when you're giving birth, you're quite literally bringing life um, into the world. You know, that's a new opportunity to build something, to, you know, grow something. And for Tam, you know, that was a new start for him and his wife to have a family that was, you know, a chance to perhaps, you know, right some wrongs that, you know, that might have occurred in a war that was a chance to um, really, I guess, sow peace in a very concrete way um, Mm -hmm. where, you know, the result is something literally living and breathing and can, you know, be paid forward into something else. And, you know, I think that might be what you found in your guitar where, you know, you lose something and in that loss, you, you channel, you know, the rage and the frustration and that grief into something real from the ground up. And so it's, I mean, it's very symbolic, very metaphorical, but I mean, there, there's a real world end result. Listening to what both of you just said there, um, it it really reminds me of what Isla said, um, the leader of the Tawatha An, um, when she was saying, you know, when she was questioned about their beliefs and she said, well, I can keep trying, I can keep trying to make the world more beautiful so the next time they come around, they'll have a beautiful world to be in. And and I mean, that that kind of feels like the the same thing that both of you were just just talking about in a way. Um, yeah, um, I, I have to say the, the, the Tuatha on in this show were, were a breath of fresh air to me. Um, I wasn't sure how they were going to depict them, but the, that, that particular discussion with, with Isla really, it hit me, it hit me really hard, actually a lot harder than anything in the books did. All of them seemed like therapy. Every every discussion you have with the Tuathan was a therapy session for the character that was experiencing it. Yeah, I can say I, I never saw myself as a person who would want to join the Tuathan. Um, but Isla for the first time actually kinda broke through to me in the show. So yeah. Well, it's the idea of finding a community that's willing to look past all the things that you probably are judging yourself really hard on. And yeah. they're still going to accept you and give you that chance to be somebody other than the label that you've worn for that long. So if you're looking for a change, that kind of community is open arms to, to change, to, to redefining yourself, to being who you'd rather be rather than what you've been told you are and what life may or may not have made you. And for a community that's so persecuted, you know, it could very easily, you know, disappear. And yet people, that's what draws people, you know, people who are looking for an escape, who need to find a way to forgive themselves or to let go of their past. They know that the traveling people 
we'll just take them in. Well, it's mm-hmm. been interesting to see different communities um, in in our world, um, communities that have been persecuted for whatever reason, and how many people who feel lonely, feel persecuted, feel drawn to the people who are also persecuted in almost a kinship of that. A shared experience that has drawn people together in different walks of life, in under whether it be music, whether it be stories, whether it be whatever, where those people who were persecuted for other reasons have gotten together and become friends through that commonality. Well, I was, I, I think that at least four people on this podcast grew up as young punks for that very reason. So that I, I didn't want to specify one music because other musics do it too. But yes, yes, that would be an example. Uh, Samari, you have some dad. Yes. I just, you know, the Tuathlon function in this world and for parent and Egwene specifically, um, one, it's a come as you are kind of place, as you know, we've mentioned here, but for, you know, our two characters who were with them for multiple episodes, those characters had a chance to really breathe. They had the space to think and grieve and truly process what they'd gone to up until that point. And the Tuathawan let them, you know, it's, you know, teach them our ways, introduce them to our community and how we live in this world, um, what philosophies that, you know, are fundamental to our existence. But also, you know, Egwene and Perrin and nobody else um, in their group are beholden to that. And so, you know, it, it allows Perrin to process his grief in a way he had literally been running from. Um, on the road, it allows Egwene, you know, time to think about what she, you know, might truly want for herself without influence from Moraine and Rand, um, from Nynaeve as well. And, you know, eventually they do, they do lead the Tuathawan, they go on to, um, the tower, but they are able to use that time before they get to the tower um, to ground themselves. And, you know, that was, you know, something they both needed for very different reasons that was extremely valuable. So what I'm hearing are the uh, Tuatha on are kind of like a traveling group home. Hey, <laughs> yeah. 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 I love the term grounding because I think that's exactly what it is. And if you look at a society where you have such a shared experience and you have such what we would call strict rules, that makes it very easy to ground yourself because you're not thinking about all of that extra in your life. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned traveling group home. It's sort of like, you know, the misfits running away to join the circus. It's, you know, hooking up with... Glenn Danzig was in the circus, what? (laughs) (laughs) it's hooking up with a bunch of deadheads it's uh you know there there are so many of these sort of sub-tribal uh thing as dw was saying yeah there are other music deadheads do that too uh you know that was that was the thing you know sort of drop out and go into this accepting community and uh and travel around with it so it's a little more 
I think it's, a, yeah, they're a little more deadhead than they are, you know, punk rock scene, because that seems to be sort of, sort of local and, and insular, unless you actually go out on the road, but also, you know, sort of the, the crust punk thing. Nomadic you know, vet versus home base. No, I get it. I right. Get it. it has, it has a, <laughs> it has a bit of that too. So the Twathon um, are who you go to for the really good acid. Exactly. <laughs> okay. Okay. Exactly. Where do the jugglers and and the really this. When they say don't trust the brown acid, you listen. <laughs> and the really good grilled cheese. Let's not forget that. Oh, absolutely. Oh, that absolutely. is the that is the true legacy of the Deadheads. And is you have to look around cheese. the Tuathalon and find the one thing that nobody else is making, the patch or the bandana that you can bring to everybody to help pay your way in the time. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Samaria said something that's just given a new angle to this whole time that Egoyan and Perrin spend with the with the traveling people. So you're saying that, you know, they had out of all the original group, they have that period of downtime, whereas the others don't. But that just made me feel like they had that period of, of downtime just before they go through incredible trauma. So it's almost like they've had that space to process what, had happened in the village and you know feeling optimistic that, that they will find their friends and then the white cloaks come i thought that was an interesting juxtaposition so i want to bring the conversation back around to grief because um there was one episode specifically where it started with a funeral ended with a funeral um and then, of course, there's parents' grief. And I really, how do I put this? I really felt that the way, we, we had this discussion briefly when we were talking about the, um, the main characters. We talked about the fact that I felt that we didn't really get to know Perrin as a person because his entire story was just grief. him grieving. Yeah. And, and that was not a, intended as a criticism because I think it is a much more realistic portrayal of grief than what we normally get in a TV show oh, where yeah, yeah. you have to get them back in the action. You have to get them, you know, back into mm -hmm. the story. So you have them grieve for an episode and then they kind of get back to their life. Mm -hmm. Grief doesn't work that way. Grief changes you permanently. Yeah. And um, I found uh, Ruark, knows this because I basically said if we ever have another episode like that please give me a little bit of a warning beforehand because um, I don't deal well with depictions of grief I can handle death I can handle um, you know um, gore or any special effects you want I mean I you know I've, I've raved about how great the Trolloc battle scene is but the scenes with other people grieving loss just flatten me yeah um and at the same time that that episode was really hard to watch it also one of the reasons it was so hard to watch is because it was so real it was handled so well yes uh, uh, agreed uh lands anguish and anger uh yeah grieving his friend who had killed himself you know, uh, yeah, that's real. That's real. Anyone who's ever had to deal with that, with a friend or a family member who has, you know, who, who has 
taken themselves there for whatever reason. There is so much anger there. I mean, uh, I there's anger, there's guilt, there's you know, I, I feel the the guilt that that Rand feels because you know we use or that Land feels he used he used his knife. You know, mm-hmm. I he could have and should have seen it coming. You know, I'm sure he's got that feeling, and I know we've all got that. I know yeah. anybody who's dealt with that has that. I certainly do. So it's, uh, yeah, that is the realest part of it for me, that that anger and that, uh, you know, it's, it's anger at them, anger at you, anger at the situation. Just, you know, Lynn ripping his shirt open and screaming is so was so effective to portray that, that, that very, very real thing. I was in that room. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That, 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 that hit hard. It, it hit really hard and, you know, just kudos to the cast and the crew for, for being able to portray that in a way that it was more realistic than just about anything I've seen on TV. Just having that, raw raw full emotion just there it yeah that that scene it hits it it hit me from two angles really um because i could see that scene from both sides having as i i admitted to earlier being suicidal in the past i i know where Stepan was i know that that feeling of absolute just despair of of you know, needing for the pain to stop. Um, and at the same time, I probably due to living a, a punk rock and roll lifestyle, I've, I've seen a lot more of my friends die by their own hand than, than any one person should in a lifetime. And every single time should be zero, but yeah. yeah. And, and every single time. Yeah. That you're right. That anger, it comes out in that, that deep, what could I have done? It comes out and, and you could see all of that in land and mm-hmm. yeah the they they that entire episode i i felt it it should have won or should still win some award somewhere some award some daytime emmy yeah. or something i i don't know what awards we are starting our that, own award ceremony yeah. so that we can award an award to that episode yeah. right that so episode and that scene specifically yeah yeah i what i found really What I find very difficult to articulate is the honoring, not just of death and grief, but specifically the honoring of death by suicide, which is something that you don't get. And I think it is changing, but I feel that the show did it so beautifully that you you really understand it for me it just lifted the stigma of death by suicide um that you get in well not you know in every culture around the world and yeah. to varying degrees and like every every part of that episode the way land finds step in 
he's he's hunched over his knife, but he's in the hall where the warders stand, right? The honoring of he is a warder, he is of those who will always stand, even though he has taken his life. But you understand that it wasn't a choice. The, his relationship with Karene, it was like there was only certain ways his life trajectory was going to go and it's not a blaming it's not a makes him less than it honors everything that he had done everything he chose to do by, by accepting to be a warder and by doing it in that place in that hall and he is still buried as a warder with full honors yeah he did nothing I, to disgrace himself I I had been trying to figure out what it was about Stepin that that really hit me so hard and I think you just put your finger on it is <clears throat> like I said I could see that scene from Stepin's point of view I've been I've been there you know um yeah. you know knowing that level of despair that level of grief that level of pain that you just want to end and they depicted it so well that, that, you know, like you said, there wasn't that stigma of him taking his life. There was, everybody understood that he was, he, he felt better now, you know, that, that was what he had to do. And, yeah. you know, not, not to say that that is a way out. Nobody ever think that that's a way out, but yeah. It's it, 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 understandable. Yeah. And and usually and usually when it comes up in in shows, it you look at the person who's suicidal and you're like, why are you doing this? Their their motivations don't seem real, right? And and, and this time it felt real. Yeah, really, I mean the really the motivation good. thing. You know, a lot of times when when something happens and there's not really a, you know, there there were no no clues. You know, they they hid it and uh and things like that there is that you know that first reaction of why we knew why we knew exactly why it yeah. doesn't make the pain any less and i think the That's... description that alana gives as well was incredibly powerful and she says to moraine that when the Sedai dies the warder it's like he swallows the death i just find that language so almost, you know, it's tangible. It's like, oh, this is what happens. It's heavy. He swallowed her death. How? That's not an easy thing to process or come back from. Right. Especially when it happens so suddenly. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of death and grief is long and drawn out and can at least be somewhat mentally prepared for, but you're talking about something that is instantaneous and a immediate shock to the system. Yeah. And and it, it is in a very, very different from any life that any of us know, his role was to protect her. Right. That's what he lived. Like, it, you've taken on this connection, this everything, so that you can embody being there with that person and making sure that person is able to go on. Ugh. Yeah. I mean, he, he not only lost 
probably the best friend he ever had. Somebody that had an actual literal soul connection. But he failed at his job, you know, whether or not he, you know, that that's what I'm sure that's what he thought, you know, this was my job and I did not do it. And that just compounds it. It doesn't add to it. It, it, it exponentially compounds it. And the one voice that would have been in his head, being able to see it and being able to talk him out of it was silenced. Right. And a, the feeling of the loneliness at that moment, if you have somebody who's literally in your head and they're gone. This episode is brought to you by Four Cats Boutique on Etsy. That's the number four and cats with a K. Katie and Jordan have some lovely art they would love for you all to check out. They have custom bookmarks, prints, and even these beautiful book page posters that have passages from some of our favorite fantasy series like Lord of the Rings, A Song of Ice and Fire, and, of course, The Wheel of Time. You all really should check out 4Cats Boutique on Etsy and get yourself some bookmarks and amazing artwork. That's the number four and cats with a K. 4Cats Boutique on Etsy. We are back. Um, and Saima, you had some uh, some things that you wanted to bring up. Yeah, so just continuing with the the theme of honoring, um, I was I was really touched by something you don't usually see in any kind of shows where you have battles, but the way that um, they buried the enemy combatants with the same honor as the Aes Sedai and the warders, you know, whoever died yeah. um, from the side of the tower, and. Uh, the the shot of the the king of of, of Gildan Gildan Giladan, whichever. Um, there was a, yeah, take, a beautiful. Take the Michael Kramer way, Giladan. <laughs> I do Failden. love Giladan. Yeah. Failden, yes. <laughs> I do. I love Giladan. It makes me makes me giggle all the time. But um, so the the shot where the king's dying, and Alana and her warders kind of rush past him to get to to the cave. You know, you kind of see him, and this is acknowledgement that this king of this country, you know, who basically um, believed Loghain, you know, took all his forces and followed him. I just thought that was a beautiful shot of honoring him in that in that way, and again, the fact that you have that shot of the circles and the graves and everybody, you know, as we return, we're all we're all one, right? Everyone was human. Everyone made choices. Um, but they're returning as one. And it just makes you think, made me think that when they come back, when they're reborn, you know, where, what will be their roles then, depending on what happened when they, when they went out. But yeah, just really beautiful. Again, just the honoring of everything in the show. Just brilliant. Yeah. The, the one other thing with that is if they're treated with dignity at, the time of death when they do come back because this is a known fact in this universe is that going to possibly if someone was a real you know anti-social you know so, you know a real sociopath would that possibly do anything in their next life it's like okay wait i was actually treated okay you know was would would that help them move move further move move up at, you know sort of level up as they come back there's something there in the grief ritual as well. I think Daniel Henney was talking about, you know, they took from from real world grief rituals where one person takes it on 
it's not just to help the collective, you know, for those who may not be able to openly grieve, you know, one person takes on that. Again, we're coming back to responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. Taking on responsibility. He was given that responsibility um, as a person who was closest to Stepin, but also it, it's honoring of Stepin as he as he's moving on, that everybody is there and holding, and then that that the drone, the dirge drone that's going in the background. I personally believe everything that happens when the soul is leaving is of great significance, and so that was another reason that scene really touched me. Um, the holding, the holding of people that were grieving, the holding of the body and the soul as it's moving on. Well, and all of that is uh, brought even further into light when we see a body disrespected in death with the Aiel. Mm-hmm. The and yes. and then we see like that was clearly we're going to punish this person even in death. And then you have uh, Tom and Matt pay that respect, and so that it, it it brought it further into highlight to see that it is both respected and even used as a weapon. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great catch. Yeah, very much so. Before we move on from from Stepan and and the grief um, discussion, I want to talk for a minute about uh, toxic masculinity, um, which, as we've we've noted previously, is not something that that we've really seen in this in in this show um and this is one of the prime examples of that um showing men being allowed to grieve and have those strong emotions and and have a loving close friendship that that many people might see as as effeminate in in some ways yeah and and just allowing that to take place i think you know, it is worth mentioning in the mental health episode because it it's helping to normalize men being able to access their emotions. It certainly made a big impact on me because a lot of my early depression issues were related to that. I had many, many, many problems with bullying in elementary school that related to acting more effeminate. And that being not what I should be or that what the normal was. And seeing a mainstream show not depict that is incredible. Yeah, and it's also amazing how the times have changed since we were kids. Yeah. You know, uh, I know my my son, who's now 15, uh when he was in elementary school, there was a there there was a an LGBTQ community, even in elementary school. Oh, so wow. there was an acceptance, and this is in Texas. Come on, yeah. uh, <laughs> there's an acceptance uh, on many many levels, and he's gone through his entire school career and we've never heard of anything like, you know, gay bashing among, among kids. It's, it's a rarity. It's, it's really amazing how, how times have changed and how that, that representation and acceptance go hand in hand. Yeah, very much so. 
Um, and I think from there, um, we can move on from grief, which was a, a topic that was kind of tough for all of us. Um, and we'll move into something a little lighter. We'll talk about uh, addiction. That, that's <laughs> is, is there a light? That's lighter episode. than grief. <laughs> mildly, mildly. Yeah, yeah. It's a mild um, addiction. Yeah. I can give it up anytime I want. Um, so we, lighter we, doesn't mean light. Yes. Right. Um, As Axel so we, drinks we, a little coffee. Tea, I'm, I'm dealing with heavy emotional stuff in the manner okay. of my people. Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, Axel read my mind. It's time to, to call for another cup of tea. <laughs> see it's cultural there you go um but uh i i wanted to as i said bring up addiction we've already discussed uh, a little bit about matt's parents and in the obvious signs of addiction that we saw there um but there's some deeper levels of addiction written into the show and the books um uh the the obvious one is uh, the one power, um, it itself, the, the, the way it's described, the way that, um, they're warned not to use too much of it, lest you grow too fond of it. Um, it, it's really, it sounds like an addiction. It, it sounds like addiction. And, and, you know, this, I'm not the first person to notice it. Most, most people have, um, right. And it, that, that's something that's been taken on that, that sort of magic power as an addictive, uh, addictive substance, addictive, you know, situation has been touched on in a lot of popular culture in the past, probably 20, 30 years. It's, it's really grown to that. I think of Buffy, the vampire slayer. I think of, uh, Willow and her, uh, you know, her, her issues with using the power as an addictive and destructive force. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. And the fact that, Robert Jordan got on that bus before anybody else is uh, that's a testament right there. And the show gives us a direct line of reasoning of being addicted to this power will ultimately lead to your death. And we see right. that scene at the end when they're fighting the Trollocs, pulling too much of that power burns you out. You will mm -hmm. die. And so that's a nice line of reasoning that says this will ultimately be the death of you right and they even show in that moment that she is needing more and needing more and needing more and then it becomes the point that she isn't controlling the flow anymore she right. yeah i'm sure even thought she could it might mm -hmm. have been the moment i didn't get the vibe that she knew she was going to die from this no i didn't get the vibe that this was sacrificial it was no i can handle it no i can handle it and then no i can't I... handle it Right. I'm going to say just from a book reader's perspective, I don't think it's a case of she thought she could handle it. It's a case of, I would say it's like morphine, you know, mm -hmm. I've, I've, I've had morphine in the hospital before and it didn't make the pain go away. It just made me not care about it. And, and I right. think it's very much the same kind of thing. She probably at some point knew that she had gone too far and she was going to die, but she didn't care. I mean, right. That is the ultimate source of of life in the universe. She but, she was in touch like, with it. You know that that's that's where she was. I get that, but like morphine, you aren't necessarily in that. I don't care when you first take some. 
No. So there is at yeah. least a point of I can handle it at some point that switches over into the I don't care. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But usually because of the substance. That's how it yeah, feels that, to be that happens with opiates in general. You know, that, that's yeah. that's why we have overdoses, you know. Yeah, I think Amalisa thought she could cope, she could deal with it until Egwene and then Nynaeve joined the link. Like yeah. if it had just been Amalisa and the other two Shinaran women, she might have survived channeling the power, but she wouldn't have survived the Trollocs. But she got a new high at that point, though. Yeah. Nynaeve and is fentanyl? Is that what you're it. saying? <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> Sorry, wow. I think I went dark okay. there. Um, so, that's so okay. It's uh, um, No, I, I wanted to explore that for a second. I think that um, how I read that scene was... Amalisa was going to get anybody around that could channel, and she, she figured if there was an Aes Sedai around who could channel, then they would be the one in charge. But there are no Aes Sedai around. She's got some training. She'll be the one in charge because anybody else is going to be less than her. Yeah, and she's I going agree. out there and thinking, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna make a big difference here, but I'm going to distract them long enough for people to get away. And that's her entire die yeah as well because she's Shadaran, right? And it wasn't until she started pulling through Nynaeve and Egwene that suddenly she was like, oh, I'm drinking from the fire hose. Yeah. And, and, and you know, suddenly she was able to do these miraculous things. But I think that had she known how powerful Nynaeve was before she started, she probably would have handed control over to Nynaeve. Yeah. But just because Nynaeve has more juice doesn't necessarily mean she knows how to direct it. That's a good no, point. No, she absolutely does not. <laughs> no, bless her. She's an open fire hydrant, not so much a fire hose. Yeah. <laughs> so a, another analogy you could draw here is that she went into it, she's driving um, like a regular car on a racetrack, and all of a sudden somebody clicks a button and no, it's a Formula One car, and she's going faster and faster. It's like, this is really cool, and the adrenaline rush, and not prepared for it and you just go 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 can't bring yourself to stop because you're going you know it, yeah, you're a formula one car with forward brakes with no <laughs> <laughs> the thing is it doesn't matter about it having brakes because like you get into that it's going well everything like it, it's going great look at this i'm doing the thing i'm doing the thing i'm doing the thing boom like she's not yeah. gonna feel she's not feeling the negative effects She's just feeling the go, go, go. And because there was no preparation for this could become too much, because she knows who her people are and they're crap at magic. And then all of a sudden, one of the most powerful magicians in the world kind of goes, here, I'm helping. I'm giving you all my power. Ah, he's got nothing. Uh, David. Yeah. Rurik, you said something that really sparked my mind and, in that she could suddenly do something that she couldn't before. And mm -hmm. to me, that was that's a real basis for getting into addiction. A mm -hmm. lot of a lot of addiction has something that's behind it that is pushing it. And it may be that Amelisa in this case becomes addicted in that moment because now she can do things with the one power that she's never been able to do before while channeling through Nynaeve. Yeah, in our world, kind of look at, look how much I can focus, look how much I got done, look at how much I didn't yeah, earn. And, yeah. and I'm sure yeah. there's some level of trauma of being rejected from the tower. Like, that has to make you feel like crap. 
So yeah, the, think of this not so much as a heroin analog. In this case, this is more of a cocaine analog. Right. Right. You just get like, oh my God, I can do anything. I can take on the world. I'm starting to come down a bit. I need more. I need more. I need more because I need to get back there. I need to get back yeah. up. Yeah. You have to be able to do that now and you can only do it with the help of that addiction. But this happened in such a concentrated you know, t time frame, you know, <laughs> for her because, yeah, it's like that's what makes it a perfect analog, though. Like you, you get a story in ten seconds that tells you everything you need to know about addiction, yeah. and it's also like that is very similar to how cocaine works. Like you go up really, really fast and really high, and then you drop really suddenly. So there's a really strong incentive to take more right then. Mm -hmm. And if you've got it, you do. And that like can drive a ridiculous out of controlness until eventually you collapse from exhaustion because like you have a long enough break, but she didn't get that. Well, it's like she'd been using stuff that had been stepped on so many times that it was, you know, nothing was there. And then all of a sudden she gets the pure. Which know. is again, yeah, like that's another really good stimulant um, analog, mm -hmm. right? Like if you, you're used to stuff that... It's, cuts you're used and you yeah you're used to you know, low grade and you know like adderall yeah. or something so what you're saying is she was she she got used to to taking a bunch of cut rails and then suddenly she got like free based mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. with yep. the good stuff okay yep. that yeah just to cut a long story short uh siobhan yeah. Yeah. <laughs> i just i find that the the comparison of the one power to an addictive substance really makes the way that they gentle the men channelers so much more cruel because you're basically throwing somebody in a cage and making them go through cold, like cold Turkey, cold Turkey. Yeah. Cold Turkey yeah. withdrawal very much. So yeah. yeah, it's not rehab. It is cold Turkey. It is. We are going to strip this from you with zero support. Yeah. Mm -hmm. which, which is suddenly making uh, what, what's going to happen with Maureen next season. A very lot interesting. more interesting. Yeah, because she's going to be going through that same cold turkey, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and as um, Tom's it brings Tom's story about his nephew mm -hmm. makes much more clear what what he was going through when he decided to end his own life. Right. Yeah, and kind of the way that they explain it, I think Moraine mentions it, where they can actually feel it still. It's kind of out of reach, but they can't grasp it. Like a phantom limb kind so of thing. So it's it's almost like they're going through cold turkey, but it's a continuous cold turkey. And if someone goes through cold turkey, eventually their body will either die or overcome it, and they're okay. But someone who's been gentled or stilled, they don't get that. It's cold turkey all the time. And this is something that Jordan does so wonderfully with this. You know, in other fantasy series, you know, either movies or books, Magic is just wonderful, right? Oh, I have magic. Great. I can do all these great things and you become a superhero. But Jordan's constantly reminding you that this power is dangerous and you can do great things with it and you can do awful things with it. And there's not a big difference. That, that line is very, well, is there a line? And it's basically upon the person who has access to it. And I think there's a great illustration of that because obviously with the show, you know, for book readers, We've read so much about it, but the show is, you know, showing you very quickly, you know, that these are pages and pages of dialogue and then you just see it. And um, the two scenes that I, so we talked about Amalisa, 
But then you also see Leandrin in the cave when she's drawing on too much. And Moraine says, sister, you're drawing too much. And Leandrin's so angry in that moment because Karen is dead that she said, mm. I, don't, I don't care. But that's a trained channeler who's, draw, who's purposely drawing on a lot because she wants to contain or kill Loghain for what he's done. And she's able to manage that. Whereas Amalisa, who, you know, was not strong enough to progress in the tower, she gets access to that and she absolutely cannot control it. And I think the show is a great example of showing how, how dangerous this power is, how it can very easily, you can very easily lose control. I also got the vibe that that's something they train in the tower, like that that they go over that and have exercises and all sorts of stuff to get really good at sharing the power with each other. And maybe there was just a little bit before she was kicked out so that she knew how, but not well. Yeah. yeah. A little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And Rurak exactly. mentioned that there's that caveat in the book where you can't draw so much that you will burn out when you're in a group. And I wonder if maybe they they left that out now so that they can use this kind of as an analog for addiction and and push that message forward. Yeah. And visually it's so powerful. And, it is. And, and and in that very in the very in this very first season we've seen again Leandrin who's been able who's able to control it and then Amalisa who's not. And you see this is what training in the tower, that's the difference. When we see each one of them burn too, which is, you know, even seeing uh, Egwene, like th that, that whole thing. Yeah. Um, this whole discussion that, that we've been having is bringing something, a, a thought to mind for me. Uh, I want to explore for a second. Um, but uh, um, we know that Robert Jordan based a lot of this off of his life experience. Um, we know that he went through war in Vietnam. And I was just thinking about the fact that a lot of the American soldiers in Vietnam ended up with drug addictions while mm -hmm. in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I'm alcohol. wondering if oh, yeah. that's yep. not just alcohol. There was a lot I said, of heroin. I said drug and alcohol. Oh, I was okay, just yeah. adding alcohol. Okay, to yeah. Um, but yeah, there was there was a lot of heroin going around in the U.S. forces mm -hmm. back then, um, mostly to deal with the fact that they were in this jungle hell. Um, and I'm wondering if that might be a source of of some of this storytelling, where you know these people with unimaginable power are also have this um, unimaginable addiction as well. You know, here are these soldiers with this power of life and death, and and yet he's probably seeing so many people around him just becoming addicts because there's, they don't feel like they have any other way out. And, and it, that, that it, uh, you know, I'm not saying that that's the source of anything in this storytelling, but the parallels are, are starting to line up in my head. Makes mm -hmm. a lot of sense actually, because I was reading or I can't, the media of some kind that was talking about that and the trouble that they had when those soldiers came home. That yeah. even in a situation where they were going to cold turkey, that didn't help. So it, it kind of brings us full circle to what I was saying before about it being continuous cold turkey. Like they were so addicted that they couldn't even come down off of it. They actually yeah. had to give them small amounts of it yeah. the rest of their lives to be able, or for a good portion of their life to be able to get them unaddicted. So that ties into so um one of the major causes of addiction is a lack of social contact. 
Um, that's kind of one of the major reasons why alcoholics and whatever anonymous work, it's not that they have a program that's good at getting people unaddicted. What they do is they provide an alternative. Um, there's been a lot of science around, like a lot of scientific studies that show if you can give people a social engagement, mm-hmm. addic- the need for addiction goes away. Um, yeah. But you take away that social engagement and the addiction comes right back again. The need for the addiction comes right back again. So You get addicted to companionship, caffeine, and sugar. Well, well, we are humans, right? Like we are social animals. We're supposed to exist in tribes of at least 20-odd people. But our culture says that you live in a house with, you know, your your spouse and your kids. And you go out once in a while to interact with other people. And you go to a job that sucks, you know, that sucks your way. So now soldiers who are in a conflict that they engage with, like let's say World War II is a good example, right? Fighting Nazis is a good thing. You've got massively solid social engagement through that whole time. Mm-hmm. And right, and at the end of it, you come back, you've got the camaraderie, you've got the esprit de course, etc. Vietnam, on the other hand, you had a whole bunch of conscript soldiers who didn't want to be there, who didn't believe that there was a good reason to be there. So they're massively alienated. So they're going to be looking for something to ease the pain of not wanting to be there. And somebody says, hey, have some heroin, which is perfect for that type of a thing. So they get addicted and then they come back and you get put into bad treatment programs because America in particular is fucking terrible at drug treatment, way worse than like everywhere in Europe because the best way to treat drug addiction is socialism. <laughs> and, <laughs> and actually, that, that'll, I'm going to jump back a little bit to the theme of the one power. You could take the word one out of it, and power is addictive and bad, because, you know, mm-hmm. I'm an anarchist, and that's kind of like my political life. But that's, again, thrown <laughs> right in there, because there is nothing in the way that the one power is used that does not also apply to somebody with power getting to use that power. Right? And why people with power want to use it and want more of it. It's the same it's the same thing. Right? So anyway, that's that's my rant. <laughs> so power corrupts and the one power corrupts the singularly. One pa- the one power right. is um this incredibly unsubtle metaphor for power. <laughs> uh David, you had something to add. Yeah, I was gonna say that Axel, what you were saying about the Vietnam vets. Uh, being isolated is really perfect because one of the problems they had also was the message coming from home was that we hate you too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. they hate themselves for being there and everyone else outside hates them also, which I could see as a perfect analog for being in the tower as well. You're mm-hmm. someone who's come from home and especially where half of this continent hates the Aes Sedai, you're also being hated from outside and that can be very isolating yeah can't confirm good thoughts so since we're talking about addiction i think that we should probably um work in a little bit about uh that dagger that matt finds because that thing that seems like a little bit of a an addictive allegory as well Uh, what do we think Mm -hmm. yeah a little taste of the dagger and then eventually couldn't part with it and then the withdrawal of that that uh moraine has to help him through and even some of going through it like tries to wrap around her it's an interesting magical withdrawal so it's on both both ends there which which i find really interesting there's something in the dagger that is drawn to matt and there's something in matt that is drawn to the dagger 
right? Yeah. So there's uh, a addiction both ways. Or an yeah. both ways. It's a codependency thing at that point too. You know, there's yeah. a little uh, a, a little allegory there to a toxic codependent relationship. And does it, that say something for Patton Fane? Now that Patton Fane has the dagger, we know Patton Fane has some darkness. Is the dagger feeding off of Patton as much as he's feeding off of the dagger? The relationship between Matt and the dagger really, um, it, it almost reflects like people who become addicts because they are self-medicating. Mm-hmm. You know, people yeah. who um, their bodies don't, well, people who have ADHD who take speed, people who have, uh, who are depressed, who take um, amphetamines or drink to, to deal with the symptoms of their own basically to, to make chemicals <laughs> happen that they right. cannot yeah. produce naturally. Yeah. If the brain can't have them, something else might. Yeah. Well, and, and Siobhan, to that point, beautifully, uh, because uh, I was thinking with the idea that people who have that self-medication and they're, and they're putting themselves through that also firmly believe that no one is going to notice the change in them. Mm-hmm. the both positive or negative like I, I i'm i'm fine i don't know what you're talking about and watching how much matt fought and everybody could clearly see even you would mention about how he would uh how he treated the child when they got to town like all of these very very clear symptoms yet matt is convinced no one could see anything different about him he's fine he's handling this perfectly there's nothing right. wrong i don't know what you're talking about and and it, the part of the things I think that feeds addiction in a case like that is that it works in the short term. So like if I can get something to make the voices in my head shut up for a while, even if I know it's bad for me, it's really hard not to to use that thing. Mm-hmm. But like all addiction, eventually it stops working, and even adding more on top of it still doesn't help that fact. But you also remain scared of what it's like to go back to before and and what it was what you all dealt with. Is it gonna be worse now if I don't at least keep myself at this level? And that's what we don't know about Matt at the end, right? So we have that brief scene before they go into the ways where he meets up and he hugs everyone. That's the first time we see him post dagger. But then Pad and Vane seems to be implying that there's something still there within Matt. Now, is that the original darkness that Matt had in him that the dagger was drawn to, or is it a remnant of the dagger? Is that connection going to remain? You know, we theorized about this last episode as well, that what, you know, what is Matt's trajectory now? Will he go back to his sisters, or is there something still pulling him toward the dagger that Padden Fane now has? Yeah, could it be something similar to somebody who does get clean, and then finds himself faced with it again. Are we going to see Matt have to struggle with the presence of the dagger in any way going forward? Mm-hmm. And also makes you wonder about Pat and Fane. Uh, what if he's so tapped into whatever he is that it doesn't affect him? You know? I had that running through my mind, actually. Yeah, it's like he's not able to be addicted to it for whatever reason. You know, or, it just, or just that there's no difference between an addicted Pat and Fane and an unaddicted Pat and Fane. He's just an asshole all the time. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. If he's yeah. so if he's so caught up with the madness, it's like it's not going to affect him. 
from but it could also it could also lead to just as an alternate option it could also lead to um him thinking that he's fine and handling it and then us seeing it affect him down the road that's another direction they could take i think maybe it won't make him any different but it like the dagger in Pat and Fane's possession might strengthen its hold on him, if that makes sense. Like make it harder for him to undo whatever it, you know, his problem is. Even yeah. if like yeah. his behavior doesn't actually change. Yeah. There are addicts that reach some level of normality at some point too. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you see that a lot with alcoholism. There's certain high functioning mm -hmm. alcoholics and maybe Padden Fane's in that type of situation. And so I, I wondered if Padden Fane had owned the dagger before Matt got it. And he's just getting it back. What I think I'm hearing here is that Padden Fane is uh is uh Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> or so, Typewood Mary. Yeah, so so when he when he gets the dagger, when you're already on like cocaine and adrenochrome and three tabs of mescaline and some acid and you know mainlining some cocaine or something and you know do you really notice the meth at that point yeah <laughs> <laughs> but I, I will mention that doesn't mean it's not doing even more damage inside <laughs> that is a good point whether or not right. it shows it doesn't make the bats go away no but you're not going to notice more yeah <laughs> maybe they'll move a little faster Right. Yeah. That brings up a thought that does the dagger's particular type of addiction or madness vary from person to person? So what was it within Matt that it's opened and triggered? What might it be with Pad and Vane? What could it be with somebody else? So it and, might play on weaknesses. Yeah, Interesting. And, and we and we know mm -hmm. Matt's weakness, right? He he's come from this, you know, broken hope. Well, difficult childhood abuse he lacked competent caregivers and had to step into that role he became the you know, again just tapping back onto what Siobhan said at the start of this call that he became the competent care caregivers for his sisters and yet he still feels that he's not good enough he's not worthy being constantly told by his mom that he's useless he's a prick like his father worrying that he's going to turn into his father and if he doesn't believe in himself and he doesn't trust himself especially with what happened to the farm you know Rand's telling him it wasn't him but there's still this doubt within him that he can be this dark person it's all it's that he was wide open and the dagger was like hello you know let's <laughs> yeah let's let's work on this so i'll be interested a receptor. To see if, it's, if it's different in any way yeah, that's, like a, this, that's an interesting thought. It's a like it found a receptor in him. Like there was, there was some sort of, uh, you know, sort of genetic opening that, uh, you know, we just sort of took advantage of. But Patton Fane doesn't have it because he's already, uh, you know, he doesn't have that opening. Or he could have something. There could be something very specific to Patton Fane um, that 
Are you we giving us a clue? I am. This is absolutely only show-based. This is okay. me just theorizing based on the show. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the reason why it's just come to me I, is... I, I will back that up. She is not yeah. giving you a clue to okay. anything. Because okay. these are interesting theories to me that I've never heard before. So This, yeah. is, a, this, is, a why I'm, this is why I'm talking... No, no, no. This is why I'm talking so much. If you were... T- if you touched eye contact on something, has been maintained. She yes. has not looked away. Thank she you. She has maintained eye contact. These yeah. are the tells. Okay, I haven't, okay. I, haven't, I haven't slipped off my chair, so it's all good. <laughs> 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 but the reason why it's just come to me all of a sudden is because, um, you know, and if we if we can continue this, but it's connecting to the uh, the male sidene madness, right? How that manifests differently for each each um, male channeler. It's now making me think about, you know, is the dagger does the dagger also manifest differently for different holders? Yeah, and how they process that differently. Like if you start off <laughs> the old line, you know, well, cocaine, you know, improves my personality. Yeah, but what if you're an asshole? Exactly. Like, yeah. But this is really interesting because the show is showing you the uniqueness and individuality of every person, that you can be exposed to the same evil, but the way you, the way it connects with you and what it brings out of you is going to be different for each person, depending on what they've gone through, their life experiences, their triggers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, madness manifests its way itself in so many different ways and feeds off of the brain that it's in. Yep. Which Ooh. is the perfect segue into another thing that we need to discuss in this episode, which is the madness brought on by the use of Sidene. Um, that is Robert Jordan's term madness. Um, I know that that, that is not a currently accepted term, but that is the term used in, in the series. So we will go ahead and just use it here for the time being. Yeah. Clinical um, definitions don't really, <laughs> don't really yeah, fit into something yeah, like this. Yeah. yeah. Um, the, the book for that was destroyed in the second age. So the terms <laughs> were all lost. Yeah. Madness is the only one that lived on. So the second age DSM, is that? It's <laughs> but also if you don't have anybody that's willing to take the time to find out what exactly this madness is, because they're just gentling or killing the male channelers, then you are just left with this very, you know, kind of basic layman's Yeah, yeah basic generic almost. understanding. Yeah where you're grouping a whole lot of different things in together, a mm. whole lot of different, you know, uh, um, diagnoses mm. that span mm. the gamut and just, you know, calling it madness and putting it in the yep. sack. Uh, Samaria. Yes. I, this literally just occurred to me. So I apologize if it leads to nothing, but I wonder if the reason why there's such that huge knowledge gap and why the response is so extreme is because of the inherent risk of doing that research, of going that distance. And so if what people mostly know and primarily know about um, researching this madness is that it will literally change the landscape of, you know, the planet, um, what... Yeah, yeah. It, it, it would be like sending a nuclear bomb to therapy. and the nuclear bomb does need therapy and so it's no can you is is there a way to study the effects ethically i mean the ethics of this alone is crazy but be you know let let the guy you know channel until he goes crazy um but you know 
no, you can't do that one because it's just wrong to experiment on people that way. And also what the ramifications on his environment, literally and figuratively, like what are those? And so maybe, you know, the conclusion they've come to for hundreds of years, is like, okay, well, the answer is just no, hard stop. You know, we'll just gentle them and, you know, possibly kill them if need be. But there, you know, maybe to them, there is no way to mm-hmm. explore the madness without, you know, potentially mm-hmm. launching themselves into yet another apocalypse. Right. Yeah. DW. Well, and to follow on that, as we've mentioned, or we saw within our main group, there's no real way to talk about it. There is no creation of any type of support structure because if you are thought to be a man who has that ability, you're going to be dealt with and possibly harshly. And those people who have been dealt with have often killed themselves. So yeah. there's, you don't want to tell anybody, this is what you're going through. You're not even going to talk to a dear friend and, about and, the fact that that's what you're going. And through. I would say in many cases, they were probably dealt with by people who were close to them. Yeah. Right. The, so you know, they, they were probably turned in by, by their brother or sister or, you know, somebody in town because, you know, it doesn't matter if, if you have a close personal friendship with that person, that person is literally a nuclear bomb waiting to go off. Yeah. And so yeah. you don't Why have, you, have you somebody... ever been a member of the communist party. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> there's, there's no way to even talk about it with anyone you find close, not just the ice that died to worry about, but you're right. You have to worry about every person you could possibly confide in. And we see that with our main group. These are some people who've been friends for life and they can't talk about it because they know what it would mean. Uh, Which also works as a really good analog for both drug addiction and an awful lot of mental health issues, especially back when Jordan was writing that, you know, it was was 70s and 80s. You couldn't talk about the fact that you were crazy because people would say, you're crazy. And, you know, supportive environment, no, it's lock them up. You've got a drug addiction, war on yeah. drugs, you're evil. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. yep. like, blame so, for the problem. Like, yeah. It's your fault that you're this way. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. in both cases, yeah. so again, like this, yeah, it, it works really well as a metaphor. Yeah, it works well for that, that, that metaphor of the social stigma. But when you add in that destructive streak, you know, the, that, that potential, the, the, the actual potential danger, not a, not something that, you know, is imagined. It's not like a, you know, Boo Radley kind of situation. But do we know if the madness would necessarily lead to destructive or it does it in some cases? And because it does it in some cases, right? Because that guy has committed a crime and some people who commit crimes have guns, we as cops have to shoot him right now and not find out if we can do anything about it. And society says that's a okay. So, you know, black lives matter. All cops. Are <laughs> <bastards>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I can, I can clear that one up for you. Um, it, it is pretty canonical that eventually the madness will drive them to, to they eventually they will lose the, the distinction between what is right and what is oh, wrong. But the the, there will be no more distinction. If, if you kind of go with the, okay, eventually they're going to turn bad, but we can create some mitigation strategies that will buy us five years to study treatments and eventually get to that. Right? Because they've decided we are 
you know, there is one solution, which is to destroy their connection to magic. There is no reason or even ability to try and find better solutions. But what I if mean, it's like a situation where the earlier they're gentle, the better off they are? And then you have those five years, but after those five years, you know, you're either, you can be gentle, but it's harder on you, or so thing, it's impossible mm -hmm. to gentle you. And so the other, uh, the other only option is to off you. So having looked at the behavior of Leandrin as our chief cop, <laughs> does she come across <laughs> to you as the kind of product of um, a caring environment trying to do the best thing by the, by, by the deranged slash drug addicted slash broken person, let's say broken person, or is she a cop who wants to put them down because it, she gets a sense of power out of it? Well, is it is it sense of power or a sense of uh, civic responsibility? Right. It's, so there, there's exa there's exactly there's it, both Greg, to it, right? Because so this is something that really bothers me in the fandom: the hate that the Red Arjar get. Now, sometimes it's justified, but on the whole, the Red Arjar are doing the job that needs to be done, and all the other Arjars are quite happy to let the Red Arjar do this job that they don't really want to, you know. They don't want to do or they, they want to stay in the tower and be in the library or, you know, whatever. But it is the fact that, okay, somebody needs to do this. And so they're going out there and they're doing it really well. Um, and sometimes with using dubious methods. But if the tower as an entire institution is saying this is the only way, somebody needs to, somebody can, you know, we need someone to step up and say, actually, what have we been noticing, you know, and it would come from the Red Aja because they're the ones probably spending the most amount of time with um, male channelers. If they are actually bringing them back to the tower, sometimes that journey could be months, right? And are they noticing? Are they tracking? Is there anybody in that group that is saying, when we first captured him, he was like this. A week later, he was like this. There is some kind of tracking. And in the show, we kind of... So again, coming back to the differences, Loghain's madness when we see him with the king in the cold open, his madness is kind of trying to direct him to kill. And he pushes back against that because he feels he has the mission. He believes he is a dragon reborn. And instead of king killing the king, like the madness is trying to direct him toward, he's like, no, I'm actually going to create an alliance with the king, which then gives him the entire army of Gil Giladan at his disposal to then go and fight the Aes Sedai. And, but there aren't any Aes Sedai who are noticing that, thinking, oh, there's something here. And I've, al I've always wondered about that. We should have some yellow sisters in the troop to be like, okay, while we're taking you to the tower to get gentled, let's investigate what is happening here. How does it manifest? Is it different? Yeah, is it, it's like it's just being treated like rabies. You yeah. know, it is going to get bad. There is no cure. You know, euthanasia may be the more you know, responsible and ethical thing to do kind of So thing. what we're saying is the entire institution of the White Tower is corrupt because it had, because <laughs> power corrupts and they have all the power. <laughs> well, I think that's, and, uh, that's implied. I kind of have <laughs> to agree with Axel. Like if, if the taint came from the dark one while he could touch the earth, why can't it be removed while he can't? Like, and maybe there's just not enough knowledge to do that. But I, I do think that maybe Swan actually has a different opinion. 
and that's part of why I think she was so upset that Loghain was gentled before she had a chance to talk to him or deal with it. But it was also a, vi she a also violation sensed... of her authority, though. Well, yes, but you you get this conversation with Moraine where she mentions that the the power is mind over matter. And I wonder if maybe the both of them together have decided, you know what, this needs to end. we got to figure this out as opposed to continuing the status quo. Because she, even though after, even after Loghain has been gentled, she has him studied. I'll also you know, wondered. want to bring up that the very first scene in the series is Leandrin and a bunch of, of Aes Sedai chasing down um, a male who who is not dangerous, right? His madness is saying, let's run away. And upon capturing him, they gentle him. You know, without any kind of trial, no attempt to bring him back. It's just very straightforward. We've got him. We get to do this. Which but in that same vein, didn't we hear in that moment, I'm trying to remember, I haven't seen it in a while, but didn't we hear in that moment the person tell him to do violence and him go, no. Yeah. Again, we saw really, somebody who said, yeah. no, no, there's a way. I'm going to talk to them. I'm going to solve this, you know, mm -hmm. and the fact that there isn't a hand coming across the other way to try and see if a bridge can be made, mm -hmm. to see if a cure can be found. And rather Moraine than... is, And Moraine watches all of this and does nothing. She says nothing about it. Moraine is complicit. And therefore, we can say that this implies that the entire tower and its structure is complicit in this. We've got a solution. It works. Let's just keep like doing it. We'll let we'll turn a blind eye to what the law is being broken because when you get right down to it, institute like the institutional um what's the word? Institutional memory. No, not memory. Um, where a thing keeps going, the inertia, institutional oh, inertia. Yes, institutional yeah. inertia. Right. This is the way it's always been done. I've got more important things to worry about. I don't care about those people. They're not important. I need well, to mean, worry about my internal politicking and becoming the top dog. Um, I, you know, just dipping into the history really quick. Um, yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's, you know, at the time of the breaking, they just, they didn't have time to, to mess around trying to figure out how to heal these people. Mm -hmm. They just had to make them stop. So once they finished taking care of everybody who was involved in the breaking, then it was, you know, hunt them down. And, and initially they did try to study some of them. They, they mm -hmm. like some of them would live in uh, um, steading where they couldn't touch the source, but they would eventually end up leaving the steading to touch the source. Cause it's that addictive. Um, and eventually every single one of them went mad to the point that they became destructive and they decided at that, you know, they they had just gone through world destruction. They you know they they weren't gonna mm -hmm. put up with it anymore. So they just kind of instituted a no no male channelers policy, and then never revisited it for three thousand years because it like you said it worked. Mm -hmm. So yeah, and I, and I think that really speaks to it. It it made sense when you've got when you're in the middle of the war, but once the war ends, you need to go back and do something about it. And we're seeing that they haven't. Um, and hopefully this will be a theme that the series picks up on and does a lot with. Mm -hmm. And it's, and it's done so harshly, like parading your captive through the streets while mm -hmm. the townspeople yeah. throw vegetables at them. And yeah. It's well, very much which is... to the corrupt institution, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. They've yeah. got to show their power. Their, it's very much like a Roman triumph. 
Mm. Right, when much, a war yeah. leader was brought yeah. back to Rome in chains, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because it gets to show the general who's bringing them back how to the crowd, look how awesome we are, look at this terrible villain. So it's the Aes Sedai showing off to the common people and um, demonstrating that they are, you know, like this is their power, this is what they can yeah. do. So don't fuck with them. Mm -hmm. um, which again is a corrupt um, thing. Another effect of the fact that they, they haven't looked into this or done anything about it, it makes me wonder that if there's just an innocent, like what is, what is the place of mental health issues in the wider in wider Randland? And you know, God forbid, you end up being a man with mental health issues. Will your villagers automatically assume, oh my God, he might be a channeler? Let's quickly kill him before he touches the source. Well, that's something that ha that that used to happen in you yeah. know yeah in rural areas before there was such a thing as you know mental health yeah treatment. witches right uh, yeah the, the treatment of that and it was just something that came up as we were thinking about this uh, about this topic I thought oh we I don't and Ruark you know if you remember anything I don't think we see any form of madness outside of the male channelers. In, in the um, series? No, I can think of one or two. Okay. You can tell me afterwards. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, gnome. Oh, so there's the, the talents, right. Okay, yeah. Yeah. Which makes me think of Min, but I don't know if we're going to have time to cover her, but yeah. Yeah. Oof. As we just talked over everybody else's heads for a moment there. <laughs> <laughs> we're I used think, I think to we it. All... We also could have kind of used a minute. Everybody was kind of talking over each other because we all had very strong feelings about that conversation. Yes. Right. Hi, I'm Dr. Pengalod. What seems to be ailing you today? Doc, it's the strangest thing. Every night after I've gone to bed, just as I start to drift off, I start yelling out strange words like Shire, Frodo, and Gollum. Last night I even yelled Mordor. I really don't know what to do. Ah, yes. I've been seeing this a lot lately. What you're experiencing is called Tolkien in your sleep. It's caused by an acute Lord of the Rings deficiency. Tolkien in my sleep? Oh no, that sounds serious. Don't worry, don't worry. It, it's really common right now. It can be treated with a very simple prescription. Here, take this. It's called Watch Party Lord of the Rings. Watch Party Lord of the Rings? It's a great podcast where they talk about everything related to Lord of the Rings. They go deep into the lore, talk about the film trilogy, old cartoon adaptations, and Amazon's Lord of the Rings series. Listen to it once a week, and you'll stop Tolkien in your sleep in no time. Side effects of Watch Party Lord of the Rings may include happiness, giggling, merrymaking, jollification, witty banter, inner peace, enlightenment, and excessive Tolkien while awake. Okay, so bringing up Min, um, I was reflecting on the mental health issues that she might have gone through. First of all, as a child... To the first time she had a vision, what did that feel like? Who did she tell? What was their reaction? And then also um, in the episode where Moraine's having her, um, gives her threat slash reassurance of, you know, the White Tower have protected you. And if you didn't have this protection, if people at large found out this is what you do, that you can see their future, well, imagine her being strung up quite quickly. By frightened villages, um, so yeah. Thoughts about men? Well, to, to your mention of the uh, youthfulness, how many visions did she have before anybody believed her? 
Yeah. Right. Like the first few is like, ah, it's your lucky, or maybe it was obvious, or you knew something. And how how long before anybody went, oh no, she's right. Especially if she's predicting death, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I keep remembering that scene in the inn where she saw uh, Nynaeve fall with her eyes burned out, and mm-hmm. she saw all the soldiers being killed. You can't like that's that's got to be something to like be just see that at random. Yeah how how traumatizing would that have been for her to start mm-hmm. getting those visions? Would she even have told people about them? Because you know. What I, I think that's the the vibe we get off of her is that she doesn't choose to have a vision. She right. doesn't like, oh, you've come to me, ask me a question, ask me a question, I'll give you an answer. It's literally like, I shook your hand. Do I tell you this thing I saw? I mm-hmm. saw, yeah. you know, everybody I've seen a vision for. Do you really want to know the one I know for you? Yeah, it's a little like the Dead Zone, the Stephen yeah. King novel, where that's <laughs> that that clairvoyance is the internal struggle with that. I think that would be a, a great, uh, that's a, that's a good parallel. It's, it's also very parallel to a more modern reference of a certain Colombian gentleman that we don't say the name of, and we don't talk about him. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> uh, so Mario. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Men is trauma, like personified. And you know, speaking of human experimentation, like, I wonder, like, so she literally runs away to the farthest corner of the earth she can possibly find. And she's afraid and also just, you know, resigned when, you know, Maureen walks up to her and it's like, I need a vision. Um, and then makes that quasi threat. And, you know, I remember watching that and I'm like, someone held her hostage or, you know, very close to it, you know, people clearly were using her as a tool instead of treating her like a person. Um, She's clearly had more than one bout with others entitlement toward, you know, her gift, if you want to call it that. Um, And, you know, when the battle is on the front doorstep, she, she sneaks out. And so there wasn't the sense that, you know, people knew she was leaving, you know, they, that, you know, this was her fight or something like, not only does she leave, but she leaves in with this vibe that she's doing something she's not necessarily supposed to do. And I remember thinking, I was like, I wonder where that comes from. And then I quickly followed by, I think I know where that comes from. And, you know, it comes from people using her, taking advantage essentially, and not, treating her you know humanely well and not something she has to worry about with the trollocs but something she has to worry about with like Patton fane somebody mm. on the other side deciding to use her ability yeah if somebody on the other side sees her as a tool they don't have to care about her as a person they can just take her and okay tell me about this one tell me about this one and if you're wrong we'll do stuff to you like it can be horrific if in a war zone a gift like that would to get out yeah, yeah and samaria touches on something that uh, I think it's something's implied that she probably was checked out or tested, held against her will, perhaps by the White Tower to figure out, mm-hmm. is this channeling? Is this something else? Is this a talent? How can we use it? Oh, now we know where you live. We can find you when we need you. But yeah, in the meantime, you can go off and live your life, but right. under these constraints. It's interesting that she chooses to go become a bartender 
something where you're going to always meet a whole bunch of different people and interact with them. And also leading into the trope of a bartender where the bartender kind of always knows the right thing to say to somebody like men would be able to do that every time. That's true. That's a good way for her to make a living. It's a, it's a good way to actually put her talents to something that she thinks is be a good use because I don't think that she would be able to have any healthy emotional relationships. You know, how do you, how do you date somebody (laughs) knowing what is going to happen to them in the future? You know, it's, that's, that seems like that's her way of, of uh, connecting to people. And along that line, that's also a job where it can mask that that's your ability. That's if true. everybody just assumes you're a good bartender and you remember that story from, oh, maybe I said something when I was drunk or like all of the things that can she can use to mask so that nobody knows she has that ability. Right. And I think Samario said um, there's a certain weariness to men. And I really liked yep. that in the show. I feel like um, the actor really brought that sense of, you know, carrying the weight of the world because yeah. you that, know, that sense of oh fuck not again <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? she does i mean it, yeah. she's able to she's able to help anybody she wants to she's able to warn anybody she wants to and that responsibility just is exhausting she had that sense of of a long pause after ted cruz <laughs> <laughs> well and now, but does she have the ability to help anybody? Like literally, it, I, we haven't seen anything change from her visions. Her telling somebody something hasn't changed their outcome. True. So I don't know that she can necessarily help anybody. She can only tell them something. And much like most predictive type of powers, people react to that differently. If they don't like what you said, it's your fault that they don't like what you said. That's that's true. I was thinking more in terms of if somebody's looking for someone she knows exactly when they yes. will be at a Absolutely certain place. Yeah. 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 What does that it say about Min help. that she doesn't go become a recluse? You know, that she has this weariness, this world weariness, and she's being used by people in power. And yet she goes to the front line of the fight with the shadow. She becomes a bartender. I think that there's a part of her that, you know, it'd be easy to just leave and not see human beings Mm -hmm. because you don't want to you don't want to see the visions but she puts herself in a place where maybe she can be of service maybe she can help yeah and then also you know humans are social creatures you know also uh, she she doesn't seem like the type to become a hermit also what if the visions are worse when she's just on her own what if they're all about her interesting Mm -hmm. No, I don't like that at all. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think with that speculation, we can probably uh, uh, call this an episode. Um, that would drive me to the bar too. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> the alcohol might help with that too. Any Who knows? Access. Who knows? Uh, yeah. This uh, this this has been a, a long, sometimes difficult episode, but uh, we made it through, and and hopefully our listeners made it all the way to the end as well. Uh, we want to say thank you, like always, to uh, Michael and Jen out at the Secret Watch Party Island headquarters. Thank you so much, Michael and Jen, for making yes, this happen. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Secret Island. Um, and uh, final question for our crew: Where is your getaway 
within this world? Where where would you go to to get some peace and quiet and and recharge? Where's your where's your happy spot? Loyal's bookstore. <laughs> Full of books and someone who speaks very slowly, plainly, and softly. It sounds like heaven. It's like being in an ASMR video. One I night. was going to say Loyal's uh, meditation and yoga studio. Yes. So right <laughs> on the same lines. And we have a sauna in the back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was, I like all these suggestions. I was actually going to say the st- a steading, but yes. yeah, I want to, you know, the books, the bookshop, the sauna, everything in the steading. Absolutely. Anything to do with Loyal or any oh man yeah the studying sounds great oh i'm going to the studying i mean watching that short i was in literal tears and it just like felt such a yearning for a studying i got it and so like i want to go to this to a studying and an old gear can teach me how to knit or something and that sounds great <laughs> that just sounds please wonderful. don't die because you're yearning for the studying okay right. <laughs> <laughs> i i actually go the other direction um, I, I feel, I feel, uh, alone in the panel in this as, but I'd be on the road and traveling taverns. You're just singing be hanging out with Tom shocking. is what you're saying. Yeah. yeah. Shocking. I know. It's, but the I, stories and the people. He'd be as opening actor as Rhodey. <laughs> I'd be heading do, to, I, uh, the Tuathan, um, caravan and hanging out with Siobhan from Wolf and Black. Oh, she's, <laughs> there you go. Good. Nice choice. Did, uh, did everybody answer? Uh, everybody except me. Okay. After oh. your answer, there is actually something I would like to button with rather than a laugh on the button. All right. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm definitely an odd person out in this group as well. Um, I, mine, mine would be the ideal waste. Absolutely. Gotta go, gotta go be with your people. Yeah. And I just wanted to mention, as we've touched on a lot of, of heavy topics on this episode, if you are somebody dealing with any of these topics, please reach out to somebody. Please yes. use the numbers uh, that everybody shares. Please reach out to a friend. Reach out to a uh, a, a person of uh, significance to you. Please uh, get the help that you can. Maybe we could add the numbers to the podcast blurb. Yeah, yeah. And, we'll, we'll and, definitely add those to the blurb. And also, listeners, you know, this there was so much just from the first season of the show that uh, we haven't been able to cover. If there's anything that you'd like to share, please get in touch um, through the various channels. We'd love to hear from you. 